Hi, I'm Spencer. And I'm Andrew. And we're here at the Slowdown's New York headquarters. You're listening to Time Sensitive, a podcast where we profile curious and courageous people in business, the arts, and beyond who have found a distinct perspective on time. Welcome to episode 39 of Time Sensitive. On this episode, Spencer's in conversation with a fashion designer, Angel Chang. What did you guys get into? We talked about the fact that she has spent the better part of the last decade building a fashion collection. Does not sound like the fashion business. (laughs) No. In a fast fashion world, typically there are four, maybe six, even eight collections a year. It is a different kind of pace. And... There's a reason why she spent all this time. It was a circuitous path that led her back to China, where she met with the Dong and Miao people in the Guizhou province. And these are grandmothers, basically. She'd originally discovered their work in a museum. And in fact, they were and are making museum-quality pieces. And she's like, I have to go meet these people. So she, (laughs) she, she tracked them down. And... She understood that they were a dying art and that unless something was done to revitalize the craft, that it would disappear. And so she actually has created this sort of regenerative system and local economy there and has been training younger people to basically pass down this craft from generation to generation. There's also this incredible connection to the seasons, to nature, to the landscape, indigo dyeing. We also got into Kronos, chronological time, and discussed that versus the idea of Kairos as in an opportune time for action. Mm. So it is a really fascinating conversation. I think the work she's doing is really important. It connects a lot to what you discussed with Julia Watson earlier this season, and I'm super excited about it. Fantastic. I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing it. Before we get into it, we'd first like to thank our season three sponsor, the German watchmaker Alanga und Zuna. Alanga und Zuna makes artisanal quality watches that are also really technically sophisticated. You've probably heard us talk about them already earlier this season. They've been a great partner and we're just fascinated by what they do. They're still making these limited number of watches, which I think is incredibly rare. They've sort of resisted this idea of scale because they're dedicating a huge amount of time to completing each watch mm-hmm. with the same integrity and craftsmanship that they've been doing since day one. Like how many things are made <laughs> in a similar way that they were 175 years ago. Anyhow, they have this incredibly high standard of aesthetics across the board. You know, all these incredibly beautiful, tiny movements inside the watch are decorated with polish or graining by hand. And the two-hand watches or the watches with a complication, it doesn't really matter because if you're looking through the kind of amazing sapphire crystal window through the back, you can see them. But if you can't see the movements inside the watch when you're experiencing it, somehow you can feel it. You can feel the integrity overall with the object. The watches of Alanga and Zuna are designed to remain innovative yet timeless. And in many cases, they're meant to be passed down from generation to generation. These are heirlooms, really. And... To find out more about their 175-year milestone and the story behind the new homage to FAA Langa collection, you can visit their website at 
S-O-E-H-N-E.com. And now here's Spencer and Angel. Today on Time Sensitive, we've got the women's wear designer, Angel Chang, who's working with ethnic minority artisans in rural China and recently launched her eponymous collection. Welcome, Angel. Thanks, Spencer. Thanks for inviting me today. So I wanted to start with the fact that you spent a decade of research and development working toward the launch of your collection this year. (laughs) When it comes to going slow, at least in modern day fashion years, that's like an eternity. (laughs) (laughs) So why was it so important for you to take your time this way? Well, you know, at the beginning, I actually did not intend to take so long. I it's a long story. <laughs> How <laughs> long time. do we have? We have time. Let me start from the beginning. Um, in 2007, um, 2008, I had my own collection back then. And then the recession kind of halted all that activity. So it took a couple years for me to figure out what to do next. I was working on the future of fashion, but because of the recession, uh, I knew I had to create a sort of new business model. Mm-hmm. I'd never been to China, really before. I had when I was little once, but I grew up in Indiana. So it was a whole new place. And for some reason, I was just fascinated by these uh, ethnic minority costumes that I had seen. So I just went on a trip to Guizhou province. It's in the south of China. And over two years, I kept traveling and thinking I would just continue my collection. Mm -hmm. But I realized that it just took longer and longer to make the fabrics. Mm. And so three months turned into six months, (laughs) turned into one year, and then turned into nine. Yeah. You started this textile line called Village Embassy, which is part of this journey. These fabrics are previously museum level, like you'd only find them in museums, but now you're making them available to the public. Right. So all these costumes and fabrics were always at the museums. They're at, you can go to the the Met in New York or the British Museum in London or the Kay Brenly in Paris. They've been around for centuries, but never commercially available. And that's the reason why they're dying out now, because the next generation doesn't want to take the time to learn them. There's no value, monetary value for Mm -hmm. them. They would rather go work in the factories. So while I was developing fabrics for my own line, many of my designer friends were asking if they could buy the fabrics. And instead of you know, me hauling them back in my suitcase, I thought, okay, I'm just going to do a dedicated textile line. At the same time that I was thinking that, the jury at Premier Vision, the big mm-hmm. fabric fair in Paris, they invited me to apply to Maison d'Exception, which is this special section where they invite 25 artisan workshops around the world. It's highly curated. They'd been following me for 10 years Mm. in my journey. And so we were the first group from China to be invited. And from that, you you get in front of brands like Hermes, I understand, Dior. Right. What was it like to get these powerhouse companies to help you in your sort of journey? Because in a way, this is Mm. like building an economy for these villages, but it's also helping you get your collection going as well. Yeah, absolutely. 
the initial reason why I went there is because I wanted to keep the traditional craft from disappearing. Mm. And I knew as one designer myself, I wouldn't be able to order enough quantities to do that. I would need the help of other brands with more financial resources to place big orders. One of my clients, Visvim, they were amazing. They just kept ordering fabrics. It was an ongoing order of all these different patterns. And they were able to revive many patterns that even the local people had not seen in decades. Mm. Some of the dyeing techniques, the people who originally knew how to make them, they were too old to dye. So then they had to explain it to the younger people and the younger people, meaning those who were in their 50s. right? And so it was this organic way of passing down the tradition. Mm. I worked for big brands before. So Meeting them at the fairs is more like meeting my colleagues on the design teams. Mm. And so there is this really great synergy because we all share the same value of wanting to keep this craftsmanship alive. Yeah, you understood both worlds. You understood the small village and you understood the Paris fashion house. Yeah. Tell me more about living with these indigenous Mao and Dong ethnic minority tribes. I understand that on your first trip to China in 2009, you went to Shanghai where you stopped by the Shanghai Museum and saw these traditional costumes that they had made behind glass. (laughs) What happened after that? I understand you were surprised by that. How did you befriend these artisans? Could you talk about what it was like to learn to not only communicate with them, but also help build a sort of revenue stream and a network of things happening around the village in relationship to this craft? On that first trip to the Shanghai Museum, I was just going as a tourist and by myself, I went to the top floor. I saw these beautiful costumes and I started my career at Donna Karen, where Mm. part of my job was meeting all the fabric mills, the best fabric mills and the best embroiders in the world. When I saw those costumes, I was so surprised because it looked like haute couture. You know, Mm. it was like so meticulously done and in detail and my thought was these costumes are from 200 years ago. But <laughs> on the, the the little signs next to it, it said, you know, made in 1990. At that time, what, like 20, 30 years ago, I, I knew that the grandmothers or the artisans were still alive who could make it. I was coming from New York then. So my mentality was, oh, okay, I'll just fly down there and order some fabrics. And that clearly didn't work, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) which is why you asked why it took so long. I went down there. I couldn't speak Chinese at the time. um, So I had a translator and a driver. They had accompanied the collectors of the British Museum who had been going door to door buying textiles. He told me, yeah, I can introduce you to all the grandmothers who who are doing this, but you should do what those collectors did and and buy up everything you can because this tradition will die out in the next five to 10 years. Mm. And I thought, wow, that was so sad. Like, why would I buy them all up? Why can't we find a way to keep it going? So he said, no way, there's no way, no matter how much you teach the younger people, like they're not going to want to learn. They just want to go, you know, to to the factories and have these easy factory jobs. So uh, I was suspicious. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, no way, you know, if you just, just pay them and they can do it. Over the next two years, I kept going back, and I don't know if you've ever negotiated with grandmothers, but <laughs> it's really, it can take four hours, you know, and you have to sit there, and 
eat with them, share a meal, learn about like their daughters and their grandkids, mm. and then learn about the whole process. At the beginning, you know, I would say, oh, you know, can you grow some cotton for me? Or can you weave some silk, you know? And they'll go for like an hour about how they can't do it or two hours about, oh, that, that was our lives back then. We were so poor, we couldn't afford anything. So that's why we had to grow the silkworms. Oh, what a... What a horrible life. And they're, and the more they told me not to do it, the more interested I became, <laughs> obviously, right? They're like, oh, yeah, we grow the silkworms between the months of April to June when the mulberry tree leaves are fresh and can be fed to the worms. But, you know, you don't want to do that. You just want to go to the market and buy, you know, some factory-made silk jackets, you know, like it's it's cheaper to do it that way. And I'm like, no, <laughs> that's not what I want. After four hours of talking with them, then they kind of give in. They're like, well, okay, <laughs> we'll plant the cotton or we'll grow the worms, but it'll take six months, mm. you know? So then I'm like, okay, I'll be back in six months. <laughs> so I had to negotiate that. And then they never sold it before. So I have to negotiate the price mm. with them. And then you know, I do come back in six months and then they may not have it. They may have forgotten about it. Part of the nine years was understanding how to work with these villagers and these farmers who have probably never met anyone who's not Chinese, mm. never met an American, never been on a plane. And so it's this whole different world and they live really closely in touch with the cycles of nature. So if I was to say... I need, you know, 100 meters of fabric in four to six weeks, you know, and I'll pay you in 30 days. These terms that we're used to in New York, well, they wouldn't get it, you know. So I had to learn how to adapt to their expectations. And a different time structure. And a totally different time structure. Yeah. If I gave them a deadline, it would be weather dependent. So I could be like, okay, I need this in two weeks. And they'd say, okay, we'll try. And then, of course, at two weeks, it starts to rain and it rains for five days. And so they're like, okay, it's delayed now for five days. And then because there's so much humidity in the air, then the fabric will not dry mm. properly. So all of that just adds together. I just don't do deadlines anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's fascinating to me to think about our clothes closer to something like food or wine. Mm. And I think we've become so used to thinking about them especially in a post-industrial revolution society as something that's factory made, not something that's yeah. connected to the earth and to the seasons and to these other time cycles. We talk about wine in these sort of revered terms like, oh, 2012 was a great year. We don't really talk about clothes that way unless we're talking about, oh, this designer had a Nice, yeah, interesting runway season. That Right, right. We've gone into fake seasons in fashion, <laughs> not real seasons. When I'm in the village, it is a lot like wine because the climate on one side of the mountain can affect how the embroideries and colors developed on the other side of the mountain. So because all these villages were not accessible by road for centuries, you had to walk from one village to the other mm. on a small farmer trail through the woods, through the mountains, through fields. And, you know, it could take you half a day to get to the next village. Think about how your village of 400, 800 people would have seen the world and developed culturally over four centuries. 
your language is going to be a little different. Your songs are going to be different. The way you dress, your hairstyle, the colors in your costumes, all of these different villages, they all have their unique identity in their clothes. What's consistent, actually, is that there's pleating in many of them. So they all have pleated skirts, but some might have white jackets, some might have square embroidery, some might have triangle pleated embroidery. You know, some are called the black meow, some are called the white meow, some are called the four seal meow. They're all separated by how different their costumes look. Hmm. I think it's interesting to go back to your early time there learning Chinese. And I understand it took you two to three years to get fluent. Could you talk about that process and what it was like for you to to learn the language of your ancestors? Yeah. So, you know, I grew up in a small city in Indiana, in Muncie. Uh, We were probably the first Chinese family to be there. And so growing up, I didn't know anyone that spoke Chinese besides my parents. So Mm. I, I... probably was fluent when I was four years old, but then after that, I forgot all of it. And when I was in college, I, you know, was in New York and all of my friends who were Asian American, they also spoke English, Mm. obviously, because we grew up American. Part of it also was, it was hard for me. It wasn't just learning another language. It was like kind of the guilt of not learning you know, this ancestral language that was added on top of that, the pressure. Mm. I was the only one in the family who couldn't speak it. (laughs) (laughs) That was kind of embarrassing when we were on family trips and they were, you know, my parents had introduced me to their Chinese friends. When I went to China, I had a translator and I would ask questions to the villagers, but I wouldn't get the answer that I wanted. And so I knew, okay, this guy is not translating it in the way that I want. So I knew that I had to start learning mm. because I had to talk directly to the artisans. There was just too much time being wasted mm. with someone in the middle. And so I spent some time also living in Shanghai. And, you know, they have these taxi drivers that only speak Chinese. And if you want to go anywhere, you have to give them directions because now many of them are from outside of the city and they don't know their roads. My mother is Shanghainese, you know, mm. so when I'm in Shanghai, I'm like, oh, this is my town. <laughs> <laughs> and, and these guys don't know their roads. But I couldn't tell them in Chinese. And mm. just one day I was so mad that the Chinese just spewed out of my mouth. <laughs> and I was yelling at them. And then it was so much fun because I just, you know, after all of that built in, after Mm. two, three years, suddenly I could speak it. And the same thing happened when I was in the villages. I would get so frustrated that the villagers couldn't produce the fabric that I wanted. And then one day it just all came out. Mm. Once that happened, things became really easy. I could start traveling to China on my own. I did not require a whole entourage (laughs) of people. (laughs) I did meet a 16-year-old girl once, her grandmother had this beautiful silk jacket costume that she had hidden away in a trunk in her home. And she probably hadn't brought it out in 20 years. And her granddaughter saw it and was really amazed by it. And I asked her, you know, would you learn this technique from your grandmother? And she said, yeah, if you if you paid me to weave it, like I'll open a workshop and I'll do it. Which was the complete opposite answer that the translator was giving me. And so I knew, okay, that's the answer that I want. 
And I got rid of my translator. When I was living there, I was doing these sketches of, you know, all these dresses and shirts that I wanted to design. And these teenage girls, well, they probably were like preteen, 12 years old. They would surround me and choose which sketches they like. All girls love clothes. It doesn't matter <laughs> what culture you're from. And they were like all excited. And I told them I was going to make them out of their grandmother's fabrics. And you could just see this kind of shift in their eyes like, oh, really? Like we never thought about that. And so it was rebranding. Mm. Is rebranding their own culture back to the younger generation. And so I was able to ask them, okay, if if this skirt was in your grandmother's fabrics, would you wear it? And they're like, oh yeah, sure. Yeah, hmm. we can make it too. Could you describe these villages? I know you spent most of 2012 there. You've You've been going back much of the last decade working closely with women in the village of Tang'an, mm-hmm. but you also went to the village of Demen first which you discovered from Amy Tan, who had written about it in a 2008 National Geographic story. How did you come to know these villages? And could you elaborate a little bit on the distinctions between them and what it's like being there as sort of an outsider? Yeah, so adding on to why it took a decade, (laughs) (laughs) I started going to China after seeing the costumes. However, I could not find this village called Demon. And Amy Tan had written about it in 2008 in National Geographic. So I knew it existed, but I just did not know. I couldn't find it on mm. Google Maps. It was almost like mythical in your mind. At exactly, that point. <laughs> exactly. My translators and the drivers, nobody knew where it was. And so I was just going to the other villages, doing my research. And then two years into it, someone in New York told me to go meet a friend of a friend, you know, out in Brooklyn for coffee. Mm. It's a total stranger. At the end of the the meeting with that person, he said, you know, I know the goddaughter of the owner of this place, an ecomuseum in Demon Village, and she lives on the Upper West Side. Do you want to go meet her for coffee? And I thought, okay, whoa, that's really weird. <laughs> so... This whole time she's been here. Uh, so I met her. She said, oh, yeah, you know, I can introduce you to the owner. A few months later, I ended up in that village. In these villages, there's no indoor heating. So when it's 40 degrees outside, it's 40 degrees inside. They walked me through this eco-museum, which was a pilot project at the time, which basically means the Chinese government was, well... They were getting rid of villages Mm. and trying to get people to move into the big cities, big rapid urbanization. But then what this eco-museum said, look, we can keep this village the way it is and we'll show that you can still invite tourists and bring in revenue without destroying, you know, Mm. the the local culture. So, you know, just let us do this pilot and you can see how it goes. So that's how Amy Tan ended up at the Echo Museum. Demon is a small village of, I think, 2,000 people. And uh, so when I went there, I was the only one there. It was super cold. And they gave me this tour of the facility. And one of the outdoor spaces was for dyeing fabric. Mm. 
And they said, you know, we've been looking for a designer for two years to use this in dye fabric. And I thought, wow, I've been looking for you guys for two years <laughs> and I've been looking for a workshop to dye. And so we decided to work together. So I, I moved out of my New York apartment, moved straight to this little village, Diemen, and I spent the next few years there training artisans to pass down their knowledge to the younger people, making fabrics. And I made my first pilot collection there in 2012, um, which I presented in Paris in 2013. Hmm. And how did you begin exploring these other villages in, around Diemen? Yeah, so Diemen was really difficult to get to from New York You'd have to fly to Shanghai overnight and then fly to Guiyang, which is another two hours, and then drive another five hours to get to the village. So the travel could take you two or three days and you're wiped out from jet lag by the time you arrive. Some stuff was happening in China at the time with all this rapid modernization. Mm -hmm. There was all this infrastructure. The government was building roads freeways, and the high-speed rail system. So within three to five years, there was suddenly a regional airport, <laughs> like two hours away. So I started to fly there. At the same time that there was an airport, there was a highway. So it was no longer these meandering mountain, scary mountain roads. It was a straight shot. So that cut driving in half. Then two years later, we had high-speed rail. It cut my travel down like five hours, five mm. or six hours. Most of the fabric making artisans are in another village called Zhaoxing. It's the biggest Dong village in Guizhou. And before it would take me nine hours to drive there. But now with the train, I could get from the nearest airport to the village in one and a half hours. Mm. So I started going there. And the Echo Museum at Diemen, they had created one up in Tang'an, mm. which is at the top of this mountain next to Zhaoxing. It's a lot of village names. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, I went there, the government liked what I was doing, the Echo Museum liked what I was doing, and so they offered to build a dye studio for me and create a workshop building. So that uh, took another two years mm. to finish. When they did finish, I received a grant from the Smithsonian to create a small training program mm. there before the fabrics could be woven and could be made. But my dream was to hand do the entire process from the hand spinning to the hand weaving to the hand sewing. And so with that grant from the Smithsonian, we were able to create that whole training program. You were building like kind of a support network along the way too that got stronger with each step or introduction. Yes. <laughs> As a designer, I I want good materials. And before, I would just buy them from the textile mill, right? And not know where it was made. Mm -hmm. But in this situation, I wanted fabric, but no one would sell it to me. And it didn't exist, so I had to make it myself. Mm. In order to do that, I had to figure out how it was going to be grown, the cotton, who was going to spin it, who was going to weave it, who was going to dye it, where we were, we were going to get the indigo, and then who could sew it. And the villagers 
couldn't sew high quality clothing. I mean, they could sew their costumes, but it wasn't finished in a way that anybody would, you know, pay over a few hundred dollars for in the U.S. Like it, it just wasn't matching the quality standards mm. here for the time that they would spend on it. So I had to create the patterns, teach them the, the finishes, just tweak them a little bit so they looked, you know, at the quality level that mm. their price could ask for. Yeah, I guess I created this whole supply chain and a local infrastructure, local economy for this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's worth noting it takes a minimum of six months to make your pieces. And and you describe your line as seed to button, which I haven't heard. I've heard mm -hmm. farm to fabric, I've heard farm to label, but never that. <laughs> so tell me about the production process. Yeah, so I had to add button because buttons don't exist in nature. They don't just grow off of trees. <laughs> <laughs> you have to make them. And you have to make the buttonholes, right? At that point, I wanted everything to follow the traditional process and not use any plastic or metal because that would mean that they were machine made and they would have to be shipped from somewhere else. Mm. And we couldn't wait a month for them to be shipped. So the villagers figured out a way to create a buttonhole. Oh, they were very inventive. They took one of their embroidery techniques and they made a hole mm. with that. And then they did these hand knot buttons, which are these traditional Chinese buttons. So that's the button process. I feel it was my biggest accomplishment <laughs> <laughs> creating handmade buttons because, yeah, like you just don't see them mm. anywhere in the market. Mm. Yeah, you actually do see them on Sawville Row with those men's tailored suits. That's the only place I've seen them. Mm. What's it been like for you? slowing down, working closely with these artisans, not to mention living in these villages for long periods of time. How has it shifted your relationship with time? Like what is village time like versus what is village time like? versus say like New York City time and and do you think it's been really helpful to you and your process kind of having this slowed down view? Yeah. Yeah, I realize time is really a mindset. In the first two years that I would go from either New York or Shanghai into the villages, I had this weird experience where I'd be in this plane and suddenly it was like being in a scene in a novel where suddenly the air would start to get like foggy and blurry and you would feel like you're entering this time warp, right? <laughs> and when you land, you're in this tiny village where time has stopped, it's as if time stopped a hundred years ago. Mm. And so it would happen every time I'd fly there. I remember the the first time I experienced the electricity went out and the electricity goes out whenever it rains, which is like every few days or two weeks in these villages. I mean, it's it rains for days. And I was freaking out because I had my laptop, my cell phone, all my electronic gadgets, but the villagers just kept carrying on because they've only had electricity since 1995. So their whole lifestyle is based on, you know, these manual processes. Mm -hmm. So life just keeps going at this handmade pace. And because they don't use electricity, then things are dried out in the sun. They're farming. The plows that they're using are actually the water buffalo mm. that are just, you know, have a stick that's attached to the back of them. 
and the farmer's just guiding them in the rice paddies. So time is definitely slower. And then when I would come back to New York, it would be over this three-day return travel process. So my mind would kind of get adjusted, mm. right? I do remember in that first year thinking on my return that I was coming back, how should I say, before city life to me was like the real world, like modern world mm. and village was like village world. But now that village and mountain life is like real world. And for me, city life is like the artificial man-made world. Mm. So it's totally flipped for me. You asked me about time. And during our isolating at home period, I was not able to travel to China. And so, you know, what happened here in New York was time expanded, right? So one day could seem really long, but then one week would have gone by really fast. And so time for me started, I realized I could manipulate it, mm. right? So if I felt like I was short on time, I would just have to change my mindset, be in a super quiet room like this, and then suddenly time feels like it expands. Mm. So even though we're chronologically, the hours and the minutes they're going by, it's more about our experience that we have at the moment that really determines what we think how time is moving. Is time moving fast, is time moving slow. That's like so how I want people to be listening to this podcast, by the way. <laughs> yeah, great. great. This is why I loved being in New York during quarantine, because sure, I could not travel to the village into the mountains, but I realized living there was just a mindset. Mm. So I could feel the same kind of calmness, serenity, and slowing down of time in my one-bedroom apartment, just staring at the wall, right? It's just a shift. And I don't know how one does that shift, but when we were forced to do something, our body learns. And so that was really cool. So now I know when I'm in the village, I can be super stressed like I'm in New York and time can go really fast. And when I'm in New York, I can expand time and make it feel like I'm in the mountain. So I actually don't need to travel to either place to feel the rush and excitement or the calm and serenity. Mm. It's just all in my mind and how am I shaping how I view time and space. And I understand Wi-Fi finally came to the village. How has that helped or shifted how they operate in terms of working with you not necessarily being there all the time in person and also having this operation that is global, is outside of the little <laughs> village in, yeah. in China. Yeah. You know, it's funny because Hewlett Packard, I guess they call themselves HP now. There was someone on their innovation team and he met me at the TED conference. He was so fascinated by how I worked with these villagers. I was like, yeah, you know, they all just got Wi-Fi in 2000. 17. Then they got it in their homes in 2018. Their internet service is $50 a year. And the cheapest cell phone plan is like $2 a month. I know because I was on that one when I would travel abroad <laughs> and not use my phone. So every farmer, 
even the poorest farmer can afford this, right?、Mm. And they're all using WeChat. And so the guy from this HP innovation team was like, "Wow, that's amazing! You know, can you come speak to our executives? We're going to China, and can you present the way you work?" And so I was like, "Okay, well, sure. This is how we work. Everyone's on WeChat. Everyone's got a mobile phone." I'm traveling all the time, so I, I I can't physically be there knocking on doors, and driving from village to village transporting these fabrics or coordinating. So now on WeChat, I text them what I need. We can do voice messages because I can't read Chinese yet. <laughs> I can only speak it and understand it. But if I write in English, then they can respond. In Chinese, and it will be translated on both sides.、Mm. I had a, a French production person, and she would write in French, and that would also be translated into English on my phone and into Chinese for the artisans in real time. Once the production order is put in place, now I've got to pay the village. They need to be paid up front. So instead of paying them cash by hand, I can pay them now on WeChat. I can even. Buy them watermelons and bananas on WeChat, and then pay the driver to send it to them or the seller. And this is all happening while I'm in New York through a single device. Through a single device, <laughs> right? And I'm 12 hours behind China, so while I'm sleeping, they're getting all this stuff done. So that's the production side. Now on the client side, let's take for example my client in Japan, and they're on WeChat too. And they say, "Okay, how's the fabric going? Is it going to be delivered?" And I say, "Yes. Here are pictures and videos of it being made. I send it to them directly on WeChat." And they said, "Okay, looks great. Oh, can you make you know this color slightly different?" And I say, "Okay." And I send that message back to the villagers, and they do it. I go to bed. When I wake up, <laughs> it's all done. <laughs> Now we have to coordinate shipping. The client approves it, so I go back onto WeChat and I go to FedEx. FedEx in China. I say, okay, we want to ship to Japan. I go online on FedEx's website and I create a shipping label from my desktop on WeChat. I send that shipping label to their WeChat at FedEx in China. They get it. They print it out. They put it on the box and it goes to Japan. That's it. And then the client they pay me, and then I pay the villagers back by WeChat. <laughs> So it's all on one phone. This HP innovation executive was like, "Wow, that's insane! You're creating a global business just with a single smartphone." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, and all the middlemen and you know different people that would have been involved in that whole system and chain of things previously just wouldn't. Right, there wouldn't. Well, actually, they didn't exist at all.、Yeah. It was me. So,、yeah. <laughs> like, I had to figure a way to do it because we couldn't wait another nine years. Right, we just had to get it done. Right. Well, and that efficiency seems to be not only in the midst of a pandemic, but even as we come out of this and and we look toward the future, like such the modern way of doing business. Yeah, it's really weird. So much time was wasted just in. Transporting things and waiting for things, and now you can just collapse all of that through technology.、Mm. And what's amazing is that these villagers have only had their phones for two or three years, and yet they don't flinch when I say, "Okay, let's shift this to Japan all on our phone." Like it's not like, "Oh, we can't do that." It's like there's no preconceived notion of what a phone can and cannot do. 
Yeah, I mean, some of these are grandmothers who literally have been holding a phone for three years. Yeah, and they can't read on top of that,、mm. so, which is great because I can't read either. So it's all in books. <laughs> I wanted to also bring up the fact that you have this production process where it takes the months to grow the cotton, the months to spin the yarn, the months to dye it. Could you talk about the process? And specifically, I wanted to bring up indigo, which is such a special. Tradition of the region. Could you talk about how these families all have these indigo divots in their homes? Yes, Chinese history goes back five thousand years. So the Chinese say indigo has been around for five thousand years, right? But it's actually probably been around for longer. They did find it in Peru five thousand years、mm. ago, also. But the plant itself is so strange. Like it's kind of like. In my mind, like ayahuasca, like how did people from all these different cultures around the world know to take this green leaf and put it, soak it in water, and add wood ash to it, and ferment it, and then dye fabric and turn it blue? Like, how is that possible? <laughs> <laughs> When I first went to China, I was not, I was not a meditator. I was not spiritual. I Did not have any kind of practice like that, but as I was living in the villages, I had these experiences where I felt, oh my gosh, that plant is talking to me, <laughs> and it would happen over and over. And Amy Tan actually has a TED talk where she's talking about the magic about what's happening in these villages. So I know I'm not crazy; like it's happening to other people too. Indigo is one of those things. The Miao say it's the only dye that has a soul. It's kind of like it's part of the family. So they keep it. It's a cold water bath. You can have it in your home without doing anything to it. You have to feed it with rice wine alcohol. That rice wine they would grow because they're growing、mm-hmm. rice, and then they ferment the rice wine, right? So they're not buying anything. It's just they're all making it. Then every day they have to feed with that alcohol. To keep the pH level where it needs to be, and then to oxygenate it by stirring it, and it stays alive. So it's kind of like a pet. <laughs> and then if it's doing well, then the fabric that you are dyeing is this vibrant blue color. And if it's suffering, it will turn to a more dirty blue green. Indigo is really special because it is an antiseptic. All these natural dyes have medicinal qualities to them. They actually evolved alongside traditional Chinese medicine. In the villages, if you had a cut, you would take a piece of cloth, dip it in the indigo dye, and then wrap it around the cut, and then it would heal like a bandaid. If you had skin problems, you would take some of that fermented indigo and put it on your face or that skin. Kids do that a lot. You can also use it to bake bread. I'm told,、mm. <laughs> so it's edible, and it, it's taken on a, a, also a spiritual nature because they would give indigo dyed fabric as gifts to people and wrap it around the beams of their homes for protection,、mm. so to keep the bad spirits away. Indigo is also cooling. If you look at traditional Chinese medicine, it has cooling properties. So when you have a jacket. Died with it, it will cool your skin down, cool your body down, which is really important when you are a farmer out in the fields because the sun is hot. On top of that, 
it's a natural insecticide. So it keeps mosquitoes away because of its subtle scent. Mm. Now, the difference today is, you know, one of the farmers who's 70 years old told me, you know, their kid is now working at a factory, fast fashion factory, right, on the coast in China, in Guangzhou and Shenzhen. And they will bring back clothes for their grandparents as gifts. And so the grandparents, they wear them, but they say, wow, this, these modern clothes are itchy and they're sweaty for us to wear out in the fields. But I guess since these are the modern clothes, we just have to adjust and get used to it. And you know, I told them no way. <laughs> like your your kids giving you fast fashion, giving you polyester jackets to wear, mm-hmm. these are really unhealthy. What you're making is what you should be wearing. It's the best for your skin, it's the best for the environment. I wanted to bring up indigenous knowledge and also known as traditional ecological knowledge or tech. Earlier this year, actually on the podcast, Andrew spoke with Julia Watson, whose mm-hmm. book Low Tech looks at indigenous philosophy and vernacular infrastructure as a means to sort of generate sustainable technology. You've expressed a lot of similar ideas. Could you talk about what the disappearance of this knowledge would mean and what the opportunities are for addressing climate change and these other things facing us that these traditional knowledges could potentially solve or help with? Right. Scientists are now acknowledging that indigenous knowledge is the key to climate change and solving it, and that this traditional knowledge needs to be included in global climate discourse. The reason why indigenous knowledge is so important is because it teaches us how to live with nature, Mm. alongside nature and with nature's resources. Now, previously, I would have thought, okay, that's nice. We should be more sustainable or ecologically aware. Let's all do our part, blah, blah, blah. But there was no urgency to it. Now with COVID-19, we are seeing how fragile humans are. And human extinction is a possibility. Nature can regenerate itself quite quickly and happily probably without us. And so... Now, over the last six months, my viewpoint has totally shifted. Whereas before, I want to tell people just to be sustainable because it's good for the planet. The planet needs you know, our help. Now it's more that we humans, we need help mm-hmm. and we need to learn these processes. Let's say suddenly the grid shuts down. Suddenly we don't have electricity. We don't have running water. I mean, all these things have happened in New York. So we know that this could happen tomorrow. Would we be able to survive? Probably not. You know, we we don't know where to get fresh water. We don't know what to do without our phones or our computers. We wouldn't know where to get food. Our, we're so dependent on grocery stores to magically you know, have food for us to buy. If we didn't have currency, how would we even get food if we could find someone selling it to us? So we don't have the survival skills needed to actually live on the planet outside of this artificial man-made system that we've created for ourselves. Mm-hmm. So if there is a tsunami, a flood, a hurricane, the people who are going to survive are the indigenous people because they know how to live on this planet. What we have to do is 
learn how to go back to basics, learn how humans lived before the invention of electricity and before we used so much fossil fuels, learn how to live back on the land and just learn how to be human Mm. because our survivability is at stake. If not us, then our future generations. Well, it strikes me that not only does indigenous knowledge include this incredible understanding of craft and and a relationship to the planet, but also a relationship to time Mm -hmm. and to understanding time through planetary time, not financial time, not Mm -hmm. clock time necessarily. Yeah, so clock time and financial time, those are all man-made and artificial ways of measuring things. When I'm in the villages, time is measured by Well, when the sun rises and when it sets and when it rains and when the rain stops and how long it takes for fabric to dry. And also when someone is born and when someone dies. So time can be very flexible in those ways. So you can say, I'll meet you in three hours, (laughs) but in three hours, there might be some rain, there might be a landslide, it might have stopped the traffic on the road. And there are all these other variables that come from nature that are out of your control. So even if I say, I'll meet you in three hours, the other person may not show up (laughs) at that exact time. There has to be a flexibility. We've become so dependent on this man-made time. The Greeks, I believe they call it chronos. Mm. And chronos is what we measure in time. But there's another word for time. And that time is measured in experiences and in nature, what I'm explaining to you now. And we've become so separated from that, that we need to go back and learn that. Mm. To finish and, and wrap up here, how do you think about all of this in the context of resilient systems, of thinking locally, of this idea that sort of came up in what you were just saying about efficiency and control? What would you be recommending to these companies that are operating at these large scales and what some might even call artificial man-made human, not necessarily so human scale operations? What can they learn and what can we all ultimately learn from the sort of culture and understanding and know-how that you've been so intimately involved with? Yeah, there's one thing I would like to answer before Mm -hmm. answering this one. Mm -hmm. And that is, according to the UN, we have 10 years to drop our carbon emissions by 45%. Otherwise, the world's going to increase its temperature by 1.5 degrees Celsius. So we have 10 years by 2030. And we have until... 2050 to become net zero. Now, we can't do that at the current rate that we're going right now. Our lifestyle, it's just not possible. And But no one's giving us the path of how to live a net zero or a zero carbon lifestyle. When I created this collection 10 years ago, I was 
not a sustainable designer. Mm. I. It wasn't about sustainable fashion or slow fashion or. Exactly. Yeah. It wasn't about that. It was about trying to keep a traditional craft from disappearing. Then as I went on to it, it just made more sense and was more efficient if we did not use man-made products, if we just use what nature had to give us and then design based off of that. What I realized five years into it is that we had created clothing that was zero carbon. It was all locally made well, within a 30 mile radius from the growing, the spinning, the weaving, the dyeing, and the sewing. There was no electricity used because the sun was used to dry everything. The spinning was done by hand, not by some big industrial machines. I mean, now during COVID, I don't even need to fly there. They can just make it themselves without me. So my carbon footprint's out of it. And you can compare that to the average cotton t-shirt, which travels 45,000 miles around the world to be sold, to be made and sold for $10 versus 30 miles in this village where we're not using any fossil fuels and no chemicals. And it's biodegradable because it's just cotton that's grown organically from the soil. Side note, everyone needs to support organic cotton <laughs> because it only makes up 0.6% of global cotton production. Hmm. I mean, think about that. Genetically modified cotton has only been around for the last 25 years, and now it makes up 99.4% of all cotton. Hmm. It's really bad for the environment. It's, you know, the insecticides and the pesticides that are used and all the water. It's like really a water thirsty plant. Native seed organic cotton is not like that. It uses something like 95% less water because all the water comes from the rain or from the water in the soil. It's not irrigated. It uses 91% less chemicals. It doesn't use, you know, insecticides or pesticides like the GMO variety does. So my process is I use native seed, organic cotton, and it doesn't cost a lot of money to do it. In fact, it doesn't cost any money because nature provides it all for free. Free, I put in quotes. <laughs> for a company today to go sustainable, you can't become, quote unquote, sustainable by using your current infrastructure. You need to build it from the ground up and have that supply chain built in. It's too expensive to take your process that you already have right now and suddenly convert it to be sustainable. It's not going to work it's, and it's going to cause a lot of stress. And we're not going to get to net zero by doing that. So how great is it that we're at a time that, yes, many industries are collapsing right now and supply chains are stopped, but it gives us an opportunity to think of new ways to recreate our lifestyle and to produce products that are zero carbon. Mm. You know, right now, the way that we're living, we're not going to make it. But thank goodness, thanks to COVID, despite all of the, the tragedy and the suffering that we're going through, it's kind of clear the path for us where we can create this new future. Mm. Sort of like a speed bump. We got to figure out what speed we want to go on the other side. Yeah. <laughs> Many speed bumps. Yeah. Angel, this is great. Thank you so much for coming in. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Spencer. It was really fun.
Extra thanks to our season three sponsor, Alanga and Zuna. Alanga and Zuna's watchmakers are characterized by diligence, patience, artistry, a pursuit of innovation, and the persistent belief that everything is possible, followed by the ambition to achieve it. You can find out more at www.alange-soehne.com. And thank you for listening. You can find more episodes of the Time Sensitive Podcast on our website, timesensitive.fm, or on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. 